0: Okay, we're in the midst of Colossians chapter 1, and I thought kind of to get us started, I've made a list of the things that Paul indicates in the verses that we've been looking at, the things that he'd been praying for concerning the Colossians. And so I thought I'd start off with that. It says he's been praying that they be filled with the knowledge of God's will, prayed that they would have spiritual wisdom and understanding. He prays that they would walk in a manner worthy of the Lord or, you know, becoming of the Lord in harmony with the Lord. He prays that they would please the Lord in all respects. Prays that they would bear fruit in every good work. He prays that they would be increasing in the knowledge of God. He prays that they would be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might. He prays for the attaining of all steadfast and patience, steadfastness and patience, and he joyously gives thanks for them to the Father. It's a pretty impressive list. Now I heard uh, a preacher say not too long ago, would we have anything to pray for if there weren't sick people in the world? And I was thinking about that and looking at this list. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying it is wrong to pray for the sick. We certainly have examples of that in the scriptures, Uh, we're told to do that. So there's nothing wrong with that. But there's lots of other things to pray for. And I'm probably as guilty as anybody of focusing more on praying for the sick than some of these things. But I thought it was interesting to see how Paul was praying and the things he was praying about for them and I think we would do well to follow that example there's a lot of good things there that we need to be praying for any uh, thoughts or comments on that yeah Logan.
1: most
2: of the time I think of being filled with something there's no extra space, for God. Um, but in verse nine, Paul prays that they be filled with knowledge of His will. In um, verse ten, that they be increasing in the knowledge. Um, just however
1: much we think we know about God, however filled filled we might feel, there's always more. to keep going. There's always deeper.
0: Right. No, that's a very good point. Very good point. Anything else? Okay, uh, if you haven't already done so, turn to Colossians chapter 1. Uh, we're ready to look at verse, starting in verse 15. I want to read 15 through 23. And I think this is a really important section, and, you know, we will, uh, we will see that momentarily. But Colossians 1, starting in verse 15, says, And he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, For by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created by him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is also head of the body, the church, and he is the beginning the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself might come to have first place in everything. For it was the Lord's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him, and through him to reconcile all things to himself, having made peace through the blood of his cross, through him I say, whether things on earth or things in heaven, And although you were formerly alienated and hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds, yet he has now reconciled you in his fleshly body through death in order to present you before him holy and blameless and beyond reproach. If indeed you continue in the faith, firmly established and steadfast, and not moved away from the hope of the gospel that you have heard, which was proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, was made a minister. The focus here is on Christ. And in a couple of different respects, the first few verses, specifically 15 through 17, focus on Christ in creation. His role in creation and what an important part he played. Then in 18 through 20, the focus is again on Christ, but Christ in redemption. And certainly Christ plays a very important role in that as well. And notice some of the parallels between those in verse 15 Christ in creation says he's the firstborn of all creation in verse 18 he's the firstborn from the dead his role in redemption in verse 16 notice He talks about in him, through him, or by him, and unto him. Again, in a creation role. But then in verses 19 and 20, you see those same phrases again. In him, through him, or by him, and into him, unto him. Then notice... Four times in verses 16 and 17, we find the phrase, all things. Whenever we find something that frequently, the writer's trying to to make a point. And Christ, in his creation role, talks about all things were created All things have been created. He's before all things. And in him all things hold together. We also find that phrase in verse 20. You know, through him to reconcile all things to himself. So, there's a parallel there. And again in verse 16 he talks about, you know, both in the heavens and on the earth. And in verse 20, uh, things on earth or things in heaven. So, there's a lot of parallels and the same language used in both directions. You know, in both of those roles. And so, I think the emphasis is clear. Christ was everything they needed. And I think Paul is trying to emphasize that. And as we get into the details, I think that will be, uh, you know, even more readily obvious. Jesus is all-sufficient. He's the answer to all their problems. He starts off in verse 15. He is the image of the invisible God. And God being invisible, that's a concept that we find... You know, throughout the scriptures, in many places. You know, John one eighteen. No one has seen God at any time. Uh, just as an example. But this says Christ is the image of the invisible God. Jesus said to Philip in John chapter fourteen and verse nine, He that has seen me has seen the Father. So, God revealed himself through his son, Jesus, who they were able to see. And the idea of image, I think there's probably a couple of ideas wrapped up in that. Uh, When we think of an image, we think of a representation. Like, take a coin and an image on a coin. And Jesus even used a coin uh, to illustrate things. Uh, When he was asked about paying taxes to Caesar, he says, bring me a coin. Whose image is on this coin? They said, Caesar's. So he says, okay, render to Caesar what belongs to Caesar and to God what belongs to God. So that image represents or symbolizes the object that it's pictured. But man was said to be made in the image of God in creation. So it appears that he was meant to be a representation of God in the world. But you know that didn't work out too well because man sinned. So once we sinned, we were no longer an accurate representation of God. But Jesus was the perfect representation because he was sinless. And so he became that. Uh, And so he is the image Of the invisible God. And the second idea is the idea of manifestation. Uh, In John chapter 1, you know, some verses, you know, the very first verse, the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God. The Word was made flesh and dwelt among us, verse 14 of that chapter. And verse 18, no man has seen god at any time the only begotten son who's in the bosom of the father he declares him so jesus became the manifestation of the father in the flesh and he's the perfect manifestation of god uh, i ran across this it says as the image of the invisible god While on earth, he was no mere earthly messenger as were other men. Other men were messengers of God, but they could make known only what was revealed to them by the Holy Spirit. In contrast, the knowledge Jesus had of the Father was his because he had been with the Father in heaven. So definitely a contrast between the messengers, the prophets, and Jesus, the Son. So, he starts off talking about he's in the image of God and then says the firstborn of all creation. Now, when you think of firstborn, a couple of things probably come to mind. And this word firstborn is used, you know, different times in the New Testament. But... Really only in Luke chapter 2 and verse 7 where it says, Mary brought forth her firstborn son, is it talking about, you know, the the literal physical part. But firstborn is used several times to talk about preeminence or the position There's a religious group that makes a big deal about Jesus being the firstborn of all creation. Uh, I had the opportunity many years ago to study with some Jehovah's Witnesses and they claim to believe the Bible is being inspired by God, just like you and I would. But they don't believe that Jesus is God in the way that the Father is God. They talk about him being a mighty God instead of the almighty God. That's reserved for the Father. And they will also say, you know, Jehovah, that's the personal name of the Father. And real early in our studies, they, you know, wanted us to agree to that. And at the time, I didn't really see any harm in that. I learned that that was a bad thing to agree to later because their understanding of that and mine were were very different. Uh, and a lot of their argument is based upon passages where Jesus is referred to as God but not as the God you know in the Greek there's a definite article the but no indefinite article and so they made the assumption that In the absence of the definite article, Jesus is just a God. And they claim that never in the scriptures do you find the God referring to Jesus. Well, that's really not true. If you remember in John chapter 20, when Thomas had not been with the other apostles, when Jesus first appeared to them. And Thomas didn't believe that Jesus was resurrected. He says, I've got to see, you know, the prints of the nails in his hand and thrust my hand into his side before I'll believe. Well, a week, uh, a week later, Jesus appeared to the apostles again in John, and Thomas was with them. And in John twenty twenty eight, it gives... Thomas's reaction. My Lord and my God. And literally, if you translated what's in the Greek literally, it's the Lord of me and the God of me. So I thought I'd throw that in Uh if you uh, have the opportunity to study with some Jehovah's Witnesses sometime I'd encourage you to do that it can, uh, it can challenge you uh, but uh, being challenged is, is not a bad thing uh, so here I think firstborn is talking about his exalted position and not talking about how he would be He would have been created first. Now, Jesus is eternal. And in this, it talks extensively about all things were created by him and for him. So unless he created himself, he was not created. And I think the scriptures are pretty plain that Jesus is eternal, just like the Father. So, talking about his position, the son was no less in power and wisdom than the father himself. Okay, any uh, thoughts or comments on that? Alan. Mm-hmm. Yep, good point. Uh, yeah, Dana. I'm kind
2: of interested in that. You know, when you think that Jesus entered the scene, like, when he was born, like, he had such a role to play in creation, I
1: just find that
0: interesting. Right. Uh, yeah, certainly a good point. John?
2: Yeah, you know, I've often wondered, like, how that is, because, I mean, Genesis. Is God speaks to the universe into existence and it, was, it, it exists, right? It's like, okay, so what role does Jesus play it's in a kind of pure surviving that maybe it's a little more than speaking. It's like there's something required to actually form things, to actually put things into place beyond just the speaking out of it. I don't know, but I've I often thought, what, because Jesus I mean at least for like the first mention of Jesus being call the great captain John Paul, right? Um so I, I don't know.
1: <laughs> right.
0: Yeah. Okay. Anything else? Uh yeah. Jill. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, we've talked before how things are all connected, and uh, that would certainly be another example of that. Yeah, Carrie. I've got a note on um, that. This is I've got a note in my Bible written from a study before that this is talking about the source. Jesus is the source. Mm-hmm. Yes. I think that's uh, I think that's pretty accurate. Okay, all good thoughts. Uh, it appears that Paul may well be trying to combat some false teaching about angels that seemed to be prevalent at that time. Uh, there were some false teachers that were attributing creative powers to angels saw them as kind of filling that void between God and man. Uh, they were kind of the go-between between God and man. And they may even have been worshipped. Uh, chapter 2 and verse 18 kind of leads us to, uh, to believe that. Uh, but that's certainly not the case. And in... First Timothy 2 and verse 5, it talks about how Jesus is the mediator between God and man. Uh, and so, uh, so, it appears that he was trying to combat some of that false teaching. Uh, so, by him, all things were created, both in the heavens and on the earth. Visible and invisible. Thrones, dominions, rulers, authorities. All things are being created by him and for him. So that's a pretty exhaustive list. And then verse 17. And he is before all things and in him all things hold together. So, not only did he create all things, but he sustains all things. And in verse 17, uh, the pronoun he, and he is before all things, it's in the emphatic position. So it's like, he himself is trying to emphasize he is the one that is before all things and holds everything together. So, not only did he create it, but he sustains it. Uh, so, Jesus certainly has a very exalted position in creation. Any other thoughts on that before we move to the redemption side? Okay, Gary. I thought
2: it was interesting. My my version, verse 17, there says, "In Him all things consist." It was interesting to hear your version. Says, "Upholds all things." This reminded me of the verse that we used in Hebrews, that I thought was the only one in chapter one verse three.
0: Mm -hmm. okay yeah good observation okay now let's look at verse 18 Uh, he and this he is also in the emphatic position he he himself is also head of the body the church He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself might come to have first place in everything." The idea of the church being a body is something we're familiar with in other passages. Uh, The book of Romans chapter 12 talks about that, 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Both of those seem to talk about the different members of the body and how they work together. I mean, much like our human body. Our body parts work together, generally. Sometimes as we get older, they don't work as well as they used to. I get that, more and more. But, you know, the idea of the different parts of the body working together and being interdependent with one another are seemingly emphasized there in Romans and 1 Corinthians. In Colossians and Ephesians still uses the metaphor of the body but emphasizing Jesus as the head of the body. Uh, Ephesians chapter 1 does that, and also here in this passage. You know, the head, it gives direction to the body. It rules the body. I mean, that's where the brain is. And the brain sends out signals that cause our bodies to do whatever it directs. And, you know, we understand that. But I think talking about Jesus being the head of the body... He gives that direction. He rules the body. And secondly, He also gives nourishment to the body. Every member of the body receives spiritual life and nourishment from Christ the head. And just like in our physical bodies, if we don't get nourishment, we go downhill quickly and deteriorate. So, he's emphasizing how Christ is in that position as the head of the body. You know, the beginning. The firstborn again. So, preeminent. But here, firstborn from the dead. I think pretty clearly this is a reference to Christ's resurrection and we've talked before uh, you know 1 Corinthians 15 talks about the importance of Christ's resurrection and we looked at that a little bit in an earlier class without that resurrection the whole thing falls and so his being the firstborn from the dead is important Had anybody been resurrected before Christ? Yep. Christ himself raised different people. Uh, But you know, all of those died again. What makes Christ unique? He was resurrected to never die again. And so he conquered death. And that gives us hope. And when we were talking about hope, we talked about that. That his conquering of death gives us the hope that we can as well. So, the church, a creation of Christ, it's grounded in the resurrection of Christ from the dead. And you, you think about it. It was only after his resurrection that we clearly see both the creation and the redemption depend on him. Uh, and we'll talk about the idea of reconciliation in just a minute. And that fits in with that. Uh, quite closely but verse 19 it was the father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him we know God was pleased with Jesus we find a couple of instances of that in his life at his baptism and uh, recorded in Matthew chapter 3 uh, as well as uh, some of the other gospels uh But Matthew 3.17 God says this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased and also on the Mount of Transfiguration uh, Matthew's account in chapter 17 and verse 5 So he was pleased with Jesus here on earth but I would submit he's also pleased with his work as creator sustainer and redeemer. So all that is in the idea of God being pleased with Christ. Any thoughts on those couple of verses? Yeah, Gary.
1: Plus Jesus tells us himself that uh... In Matthew, all power
0: and authority has been given to me. Right. Yep. Anything else? Okay. And let's look at verse twenty. It says and through him to reconcile all things to himself, having been made having made peace through the blood of his cross. Through him, I say, whether things on earth or things in heaven. So, reconciliation. What's you know? What's the idea of reconciliation? If you've got two parties that need reconciled, what's the problem? Gary. There's a separation between them isn't there? And who needed to be reconciled here? Pretty obvious. God and man. Yeah, you know, there needed to be a reconciliation. Generally, when you've got a conflict between two parties, you've got a guilty party and an innocent party. In the case of man and God, God is innocent. He's the harmed party. We're the ones that are guilty. We're the ones that sin. You know, Isaiah 59, verses 1 and 2. Our sins separate us from God. God's not the one that moved. We did. So, when there's the need for reconciliation, who's normally expected to make the move to to bring the two parties back together? The innocent party? or the guilty party generally the guilty party so we had offended God we had sinned against him we needed to be reconciled but how did that reconciliation take place Who's the one that did the reconciling? It was God. We really couldn't. If we were waiting, I mean, if God was waiting for us to reconcile ourselves, he'd still be waiting. Leanne, did you have a comment?
2: I think it's interesting that it says reconcile to all things. Mm-hmm.
0: Uh, I think sin brought about a lot of things in the world it changed the way the world was created it was created perfectly one big thing that was introduced when man sinned was death because God made it clear to Adam and Eve in the day that you eat of this fruit you'll die. And I would submit they died spiritually and they also died physically because they were forced out of the garden. What was in the garden that they needed access to to keep living? The tree of life. So, certainly the, the paradise that God and Jesus created was changed by man's sin. So I think that's one thing. Uh, Mike? Mike? Yes, it is. Battles, uh,
2: yeah. and When you think of it in that way, when it talks
0: about reconciling all things
2: to himself, whether things on earth or things
0: in heaven, you know, before Christ died,
1: there was an imbalance because Satan ruled the earth and death still reigned. Once Christ died, the the uh, account is in balance where death. Because the statement could no longer have any power that could supersede price whatsoever. So I thought mm-hmm. that was an interesting
0: way to look at it too. Yes, I I would certainly agree. And uh yeah, it is an accounting term, right, Brad? <laughs> yeah, right. I have a lot of questions
2: about what I don't have to say <laughs>
0: I think those are good questions. I don't think I've got the answers either. Uh, but yeah, uh, you do make a good point. Not only did man's death enter but because of man's sins animals had to die. There were the animal sacrifices and even in the garden uh, Adam and Eve knew they were naked. God clothed them with animal skins. I think it's a pretty reasonable assumption that some animals died to give up those skins. And so, uh, so I think that's a really good observation. Things got out of whack and out of balance. And, uh, and God's been working to get that back in balance. And once there's the new heavens and new earth, that gets into balance again. So, good thought. Anything else? Yeah, Brad. Since
1: you called me out there. an entry to us so that we might be in room with him and have fellowship with him um, so I think that's an interesting mm-hmm. part of that
0: and, and Paul says what that adjusting entry was says having made peace through the blood of the cross that was what was needed to bring us back in balance. So, uh, and early on in this class, we talked about propitiation in First uh, John chapter two, and how Christ, you know, God provided that atoning gift. Uh, so, yeah, Mitch.
2: love of Christ through Him. Uh, I say whether things on earth or things in heaven
0: Yeah, no, good point. And I, I think it's both. Okay. Anything else? In uh, verse twenty one and twenty two, says, and, al- and although you were formerly alienated and hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds, yet he has now reconciled you in his fleshly body through death. In order to present you before him holy and blameless and beyond reproach. Uh, the you there in verse 21, and although you were formerly alienated, that is in the emphatic position. So, man has a special place in God's plan of redemption. Redemption. Christ came to redeem man. To redeem us. And he describes how they used to be. I think. As an encouragement. Don't go back into that. The sacrifice was made to get you reconciled to God. Don't go back into. The way you used to live. So. So. It's important to try to live holy. To be, uh, you know, showing our gratitude for what God has done, and done for us. And in verse 22, And yet he has now reconciled you in his fleshly body through death. In order to present you before him holy and blameless and without reproach. So that's what the sacrifice of Jesus does for us. It makes us holy and blameless. That doesn't mean that we've been living perfectly. But it gets us back into that relationship with God because the atoning sacrifice has been made. And then uh, verse 23, the last one that we read, says, If indeed you continue in the faith, firmly established and steadfast, and not moved away from the hope of the gospel that you have heard, which was proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, was made a minister. So, I think Paul uses these words to encourage them, don't lose what you've got. You need to try to live faithfully. And don't allow yourself to be moved away from the hope of the gospel. So apparently that is possible. So he admonishes them not to do that. And then he mentions how he Paul uh, he was proclaiming that this hope of the gospel that you Colossians have heard which was proclaimed in all creation under heaven that uh, certainly reminds me of the great commission where they were told the apostles were told to preach the gospel to every creature and Apparently that was accomplished. Okay, uh, Sunday we'll make a couple more points at the end of chapter 1. We'll get into chapter 2. I think we'll probably spend two to three class periods finishing up Colossians 1 and covering Colossians 2. I think we'll spend two class periods on Colossians 3, roughly. And that leaves one left for Colossians 4, which I think we can do that. So that's kind of where we're headed. Uh, I did have somebody ask me, do you really intend to complete Colossians? And the answer is yes. So thank you for all your uh, time.